Welcome to the Building the Elite Podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. This is Jonathan Pope from Building the Elite. Today, we're going to talk about stress, training, and adaptation. This is part two of a two-part podcast so you might want to go check out the previous podcast if you haven't listened to it yet. We wrapped up part one of this series by discussing why and how you should manage stress to ensure that you're adapting to your training. Next, we'll discuss what specific capabilities you should target to get the best results over time. Foundational qualities combine structural and strategic or skill-based adaptations that fundamentally improve your ability to tolerate and recover from training load. In any training scenario, these qualities are your priority. They are what allow you to train at the necessary volume and intensity to reach the outputs required to meet physical performance goals. Foundational adaptations are things like strength and coordination, or your ability to move well and produce enough force to do specific tasks. Aerobic fitness, which is your ability to do a large amount of work and quickly recover from anything, because all recovery is aerobic. And psychological skills. These include things like a growth mindset, hardiness, and emotional intelligence, to name a few. These impact the quality of your work, your ability to consistently do the required training, and your ability to overcome the inevitable challenges that life throws at you. Nothing happens in isolation, and training methods used to develop these areas often have effects across multiple systems in the body. Structural adaptations include mitochondrial density, actin-myosin density, heart adaptations, capillarization, changes in neurons in the brain, etc. These take a long time to develop, but also take a long time to degrade, and thus are the building blocks of higher levels of fitness. The great thing about these foundational capabilities is that they can be developed simultaneously, which is more efficient and leads to a more effective response to training loads over time. Functional adaptations coordinate different structural adaptations to produce a specific physiological capability. Control of the stress response, breathing, and tactical considerations for getting through a specific workout. Things like pacing, the control of attention and cueing, and coordinating these in a specific manner are examples of a functional adaptation. If you ever do a workout, repeat it a few days later, and continue improving, it's because of these adaptations. They are the how you perform, not the what that you use to perform. So if structural adaptations are the car, then functional adaptations are the driver. Many trainees who come to us have hit a wall with their training by spending too long chasing functional adaptations and not enough time building structural adaptations. Typically, they have been doing beatdown type of workouts too often. Think circuit training, exercise racing, HIIT, or high-volume calisthenics and go too hard when they're doing their endurance training. It's not that these workouts can't be part of an intelligent plan, they are. Or they don't develop structural abilities, they do. 
The problem is that your performance stops improving when these are done too frequently without an emphasis on other workouts that target underlying structural capabilities. Your training should focus on building structural adaptations first, because these are the drivers of trainability or more effective adaptation response. You'll always be building some functional qualities concurrently because no system works independently of the other systems. For example, your energy systems are active during strength training, but functional adaptations are always dependent on the structural adaptations that they exploit. If you want to raise your performance ceiling, you have to invest in building foundational adaptations instead of constantly exploiting what you already have. You have to build a higher performance car instead of driving the heck out of the Honda Civic you've already got. High-level CrossFit Games athletes are a good example of the power of structural adaptations. What makes them so capable of performing the scattergun events that they compete in, maybe things like max pull-ups followed by a 5k run followed by max squats, that sort of thing, is the fact that they all have high relative strength, a powerful aerobic engine, move well under load and fatigue, and can do a lot of work in a short period. This allows them to excel in nearly any physical task put in front of them, assuming they have the necessary skills to execute it. However, no high-level CrossFit athlete built those capabilities via testing-based CrossFit workouts. Competitions are where these abilities are displayed, but not where they are developed. Nearly all of these athletes come from backgrounds of more formal training, for instance, gymnastics or traditional Olympic weightlifting. And from there, use a model similar to what we use for our athletes for most of their training. They treat CrossFit-style workouts as sport-specific skill practice. Developing any adaptation has a cost. The good news about foundational qualities is that they reduce this cost. They trade off each other and coordinate their efforts. For example, a strong athlete with a large aerobic base who moves well and manages stress, fatigue, and pain effectively can do much more work while accruing less physiological damage. Not only that, but it allows the trainee to utilize the desired systems during each training phase. In other words, they can focus on the adaptations that they want. On the other hand, think of a super heavyweight power lifter with a poorly developed aerobic system. He is severely limited in how much aerobic work he can do until that system comes up to par with other systems. Not only that, but his systemic volume, even in other training sessions, will be limited because all recovery is aerobic in nature. If we push his aerobic training volume too high, which would be quite easy, it would severely interfere with his ability to recover even from max effort squat sessions that he would be used to doing. These examples are fairly simple, but oftentimes the cost of adaptation compounds dramatically when foundational qualities and their coordination are not trained sufficiently before training intensity is increased. This is why our programming starts with a focus on building foundational qualities and the coordination between them. It reduces the cost of adaptation and raises the ceiling of future performance. There's a reason why competitive powerlifters are not also great endurance athletes. 
As you reach the higher end of human potential, you must become more specialized. Often, all other physiological qualities will fall to the minimum necessary to maximize other abilities. So if you look at the physiological profile of a world-class powerlifter, it will look very different than that of a soft operator. Some traits are mutually beneficial to a certain degree. For example, an extremely powerful athlete, like a long jumper, a javelin thrower, or an Olympic weightlifter, also tends to have very high maximal strength relative to a normal person, a high-level endurance athlete, or even an average special operator. Many people with diverse athletic backgrounds can pick up new sports quite quickly because of the carryover of previously developed adaptations. There's always a trade-off between power and capacity. Power is the ability to demonstrate maximal intensity, but for a short time. For example, a max effort squat, 100-meter sprint, or javelin throw would display power. Capacity is the ability to perform something for a long time or repeat a task within a short period. Swimming a mile or doing 500 push-ups over the course of a beatdown session is a display of capacity. Work capacity is a blend of power and capacity. A marathoner has a large work capacity, but so does an Olympic-level weightlifter. Both have to sustain a large amount of specific work to achieve high levels of competency in their respective sports. However, if we change their work domain, someone who is both weak, think low power, and can't go far, think low capacity, will also have a low work capacity. These examples explain how foundational traits and their coordination are what drive work capacity. There's a trade-off regarding either power or capacity within a specific trait. The greater your capacity, the lower your max power will be. This is why an ultramarathon runner might not be able to run a fast 100-meter sprint, but can run for hours on end at the same pace. Olympic lifters are at the other end of the spectrum. They have an immense amount of power or max output, but their capacity in nearly every other area is relatively low when compared to someone else whose training focuses on capacity. To illustrate this trade-off, consider an operator we worked with. An SAS operator who started with us was ridiculously strong and carrying a large amount of muscle. He had more power than he needed, so short run times and good strength and power, but not enough capacity for things like long-distance runs and rucks. After making a few adjustments to lifestyle, recovery, nutrition, psychological skills, and training to boost his adaptive reserves, in other words, the energy he had to spend on new adaptations, we focused on improving his capacity for running and rucking. His absolute strength dropped as he cut down about 10 pounds of muscle, but his long-duration runs and rucks improved dramatically. His relative strength improved as well. He was lighter and his max strength and power dropped only slightly, meaning that his absolute strength dropped, but his relative strength improved. Combined with his improved capacity, he had a better balance between power and capacity with running and rucking. This paid dividends during his selection, where he could maintain the needed rucking times without crushing himself. And he passed, of course. If we had spent those adaptive reserves on more strength training or aerobic power, like short distance running or rucking, he would have smashed the shorter rucks and runs, 
but his performance on the longer runs would have been worse and could have led to him washing out. The goal of training for soft is to become a work capacity monster. This means balancing your power and capacity in every domain. And as above, this means maximizing foundational qualities. If you look at the physiological profile of every operator, it's always the same. They are competent at everything. This allows them to be capable of doing a lot of work in a variety of different tasks. Keeping this in mind, if you spend too much time developing power or capacity in any domain, you can create an imbalance that can leave you susceptible to missing a standard in selection. For example, if you spend too much time working on running your aerobic capacity, you may be able to run all day, but you might not have enough strength. There's some wiggle room. Some individuals will be better at some qualities than others. This isn't an issue as long as it doesn't keep you from reaching all standards. Over time, training should follow a predictable pattern. First, you must have variety. In other words, you need to move well enough to handle the large variety of tasks that you have to be capable of, or you'll never be able to handle the volume that soft pipelines demand. Permanent tissue adaptations take some time, typically at least three to six months. So it's best to give yourself time if you're severely lacking in this department. Not only that, but permanently holding these changes will require you to rebuild movement and coordination patterns. Again, this takes time. Small changes can be accomplished much faster, so you need to know where you fall on the continuum. To illustrate the importance of variety, let's go through another example. We had a trainee who had spent a few years as a college football player. He had spent years maximizing strength and power at the expense of movement capacity. In other words, he could have done nothing but Zumba classes for two years and still be strong enough. But he had a hard time putting in the required running and rucking volume because something was always, always getting injured. His back, neck, and knees were constantly bothering him from carrying 275 plus pounds and the abuse of Division I college football. In his case, we had some disadvantages. He had both a time crunch when it came to preparation and a very stressful job that played a significant role in his allostatic load. Knowing he wasn't going to be able to prepare properly without spending significant time improving movement and reducing other life demands first, he opted to hold off on selection. It was a good decision. We've gone through the same process with other athletes. Sometimes it's a small adjustment related to more movement fidelity or how they move under stress. And sometimes it's as simple as improving overhead position by a small amount. We can typically improve this concurrently with a regular training schedule. You also have to consider the status of the local tissues when changing biomechanics and movement. Wolf's and Davis's laws state that tissues adapt to the strain applied to them in a specific manner. Again, this takes months and years, not days and weeks. So when you change movement potential and biomechanics, you change which tissues are stressed and how they are stressed. If you do this and add intensity or volume too quickly, you're asking for an injury. Once you have the requisite movement capacity and fidelity, you must slowly add volume to build your work capacity. Top-end outputs will rise naturally as a consequence of intelligent training. 
The primary goal is to train your ability to handle larger and larger volumes of work and coordinate how you respond to this work. When done properly, the cost of adaptation shrinks over time, allowing you to become more efficient while capable of higher performance levels. Next up, you have to consider specificity. You must replicate as closely as possible the conditions of selection over time. We do this artificially by manipulating nutrition, training volume and intensity, using open-ended workouts, and by altering the environment. We cannot and do not want to fully replicate selection. The principle of train harder than you play doesn't really apply here. However, we want to replicate aspects of it. So the mental models and skills that you're practicing can transfer when you arrive at selection. During foundational phases, we focus on building physiological and psychological qualities that are the building blocks needed to develop more specific skills. Over time, we integrate these skills into fixed-length training sessions and eventually move on to more specific conditions. Specific considerations start to become relevant during the later phases of training. These are things like training alone versus with a partner, footwear or fins while swimming, outside temperatures and ambient conditions, water temperature, salt versus fresh water, and open water versus pool swimming, or things like open versus closed-ended workouts, and then mixing demand across the workout, so beatdown sessions to running to rucking to pool comp, etc. There's a lot of confusion about what variables can be adjusted when training. Really, though, there is only one true variable, volume. On hearing that, most people ask, but what about intensity? It's a good question, but intensity can only change within a narrow window or you're not training the quality that you think you are. For example, if you reduce intensity in strength work too much, you're no longer working on strength. You may be working on speed strength, strength endurance, or some other quality, but you've changed your target adaptation. Specific adaptations like maximal strength and speed strength are more like ingredients that you can include or not. If you vary the intensity you put into them by too much, you're just doing something else, using a different ingredient in your workout. Volume is the variable that determines how much of an ingredient that you're using. Intensity determines what the ingredient is. Increases in maximal strength measured via one rep max will change the range of numbers used across the force velocity curve. But it's important to keep in mind that your one rep max doesn't fluctuate that much from week to week. If you're bumping the load up and down daily, you're changing which of the ingredients that you're using, not how much of the same ingredient that you're using. Once you've decided what you're focusing on during a workout or training block, you only have small changes to make outside of volume. Exercise selection and relative intensity within a finite range, tempo, speed, etc. While those are all relevant variables, they play a small role with a non-specialized athlete. If you're working on maximizing your strength in a few movements at the cost of all other abilities, they start playing a much larger role. If you're training for soft, your specialization is not having a specialization. Or rather, it's being able to handle extreme stress and workloads across all the capacities that other people specialize in. Intensity is never relative to a standard or something you did once. 
It has to be based on what you're currently capable of, or else you'll run into problems. For example, you can't program based on times you should be running, swimming, or rucking. If you decide you're always going to ruck at a 20-minute-per-mile pace, you'll get far less out of a workout than by focusing on the ideal intensity to create the specific adaptation you want based on your current fitness level, even if that means moving slower today than you'd like to. By going too fast, you might target the wrong adaptations and the cost of recovery would be too high, which would limit the volume you'd be able to handle in the long run. Eventually, of course, you need to hit standards, but arguing with reality does not work with programming. Instead, you have to respect your physiology and measure how it responds to the training load that you apply. Doing this will target the ideal adaptations that will enable you to hit the standards in the long run. You may get better short-term results by using short-term focused programming, but you'll be exploiting the foundation you have to reach a temporary peak instead of building a larger foundation to eventually rise to a higher peak in overall fitness. The overwhelming majority of our trainees have come to us after having this exact experience. They've added more and more, gone harder and harder, only to eventually crash. They've reached a peak, but until they invest in short-term loss and have the patience to build a larger foundation, they'll never reach a higher peak. Frequency is another variable that we can adjust, though it's only a sub-variable since frequency is part of the volume equation. When measuring volume, you have to define the specific timeline over which you're measuring it. So if you look at running volume over seven days, frequency is just a description of how you broke up the total volume. Frequency does matter because adjusting it changes the way your body is stressed. For example, running 25 miles in one day versus five miles daily within a working week has a very different training effect. Thus, when thinking of programming, volume is the key variable to consider. Intensity is dictated by the specific adaptation that you're focusing on, and frequency is usually controlled by the parameters of the specific training method that you're using and the outcome goal that you're chasing. Finally, specific methods will vary with a narrow window based on the method chosen to elicit a specific adaptation. When viewing things this way, it becomes easy to build flexible training blocks that you can adjust based on your athlete's total stress load, how they respond, and their recovery practices. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We know this one was concept heavy, but we tried to hammer the points home with examples. If you'd like to learn more, we wrote a 550-page book on this topic. We also recently released BTE goal and career-specific training programs. We have programs for various goals from soft selection prep to active duty operators, law enforcement, firefighters, and general fitness. These aren't one-size-fits-all templates. Instead, we assess where you're currently at and assign you a program based on specific strengths and weaknesses. Training plans are adaptable, so you can adjust them to your needs and schedule. And in addition to training, you get access to daily mental skills lessons that complement your workouts. You also have access to BTE coaches to ask questions and get feedback when needed. To find out more, go to buildingtheelite.com.